Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that lets you contribute to my work, and that'll help keep the podcast going and light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is also listed in that show notes page. If you contribute at least $4.99 per month, you're eligible for membership in the Ward Republic, which gets you one phone call with myself and the other Ward Republic members each month. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our new sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold backs. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page as well. And if you use it, I will get a 1% commission. So click on my link in the show notes page and help fuel monetary decentralization today. And don't forget to download the MeWe app and search for me so we can be friends and then I can add you into the show's private MeWe group so we can have sane and rational discourse around historic and current political topics. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic. So again, for today's episode, in order to pay tribute to Lee Jackson Week, we are going to take a break from our study of the corporate form, and this time we're going to pay honor to Stonewall Jackson. So Lee's birthday was on the 19th, and Jackson's birthday is on the 21st of January. Uh, This episode will be released on Jackson's birthday, so hopefully you get to hear it that day, so it has more of an impact, maybe. But I want to give a shout out to Brian McClanahan. I I actually just finished reading his book called Southern Scribblings, and that book actually brought the speech that we're going to study today to my attention. Um, So definitely all the shout out in the world to Dr. Brian McClanahan. Great book. If you haven't read it, I'll include a link for it. But great, great book. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with this speech. So this is coming from a minister named Moses Drury Hogue. And Hogue was a Presbyterian minister in Virginia. Throughout the war, he provided some pastoral services both to Stonewall Jackson and also to some of the higher-ups in the Confederate government. So he was the preacher of the, or the pastor of the Second Presbyterian Church there in Richmond, Virginia for almost 54 years so he is the man who was chosen to lead the oration or to give the oration at the dedication ceremony for Stonewall Jackson's memorial on Monument Avenue. And this speech was given on October 26th, 1875. So right towards the official end of Reconstruction, although in my opinion, Reconstruction never really stopped. So we're not going to waste too much time today. I'm not actually going to give you guys a biography of Stonewall before we start because Hogue actually does a really good job of that, so we'll let him explain it. But let's go ahead and get started here. He says, Were I permitted at this moment to consult my own wishes, I would bid the thunder of the cannon and the acclamations of the people announce the unveiling of the statue, and then when with hearts beaten with commingled emotions of love and grief and admiration— we had contemplated this last and noblest creation of the great sculptor. The ceremonies of this August hour should end. In attempting to commence my oration, I am forcibly reminded of the faltering words with which Bossuet began his splendid eulogy on the Prince of Condé. Said he, at the moment I opened my lips to celebrate the immortal glory of the Prince of Condé, I find myself equally overwhelmed by the greatness of the theme and the needlessness of the task. What part of the habitable world has not heard of his victories and the wonders of his life? Everywhere they are rehearsed. His own countrymen, in extolling them, can give no information even to the stranger. 
And although I may remind you of them, yet everything I could say would be anticipated by your thoughts, and I should suffer the reproach of falling far below them. I cannot repress an emotion of awe as I vainly attempt to overlook the mighty throng, extending as it does beyond the limits of these capital grounds, and covering spaces which cannot even be reached by the eye of the speaker. And so just a quick pause here. So at this dedication ceremony for the Jackson Memorial, there were roughly 40,000 people in attendance. Roughly 40,000 people. So he goes on, he says, We have come from the seashore, the mountains, and the valleys of our Southland, not only to inaugurate a statue, but a new era in our history. Here on this Capitol Hill, on this 26th day of October 1875, and in the 100th year of the Commonwealth of Virginia, in sight of that historic river that more than two centuries and a half ago bore on its bosom the bark freighted with the civilization of the North American continent, on whose banks Powhatan wielded his scepter and Pocahontas launched her skiff, under the shadow of that capital whose foundations were laid before the present federal constitution was framed, and from which the edicts of Virginia went forth over her rim that stretched from the Atlantic to the Mississippi, edicts framed by some of the patriots whose manly forms on yonder monument still gather around him, whose name is the purest in human history, talking about George Washington, we have met to inaugurate a new pantheon to the glory of our common mother. In the story of the empires of the earth, some crisis often occurs which develops the genius of the era and impresses an imperishable stamp on the character of a whole people. Such a crisis was the revolution of 1776 when 13 thinly settled and widely separated colonies dared to offer the gauge of battle to the greatest military and naval power to, on the globe. The story of that struggle is the most familiar in American annals. After innumerable reverses and incredible sufferings and sacrifices, our fathers came forth from the ordeal victorious. And though during the progress of the strife, before calm reflection had quieted the violence of inflamed passion, they were branded by opprobrious names, and their revolt denounced as rebellion and treason. The justice of their cause and the wisdom, the valor, and the determination with which they vindicated it were quickly recognized and generously acknowledged by the bravest and purest of British soldiers and statesmen. So that now, when we seek the noblest eulogies of the founders of American republicanism, we find them in the writings of the essayists and historians of the mother country. We honor ourselves and do homage to virtue when we hallow the names of those who in the council and in the field achieve such victories. We bequeath an influence which will bless all coming generations when with the brush and the chisel we perpetuate the images of our fathers and the founders of the state. Already has the noble office been begun. Here on this hill, the forms of Washington and Henry and Lewis and Mason and Nelson and Jefferson and Marshall arrest our eyes and make their silent but salutary and stirring appeals to our hearts. Nor are these all who merit eternal commemoration. As I look on that monument, I miss James Madison and others of venerable and illustrious name. Let us not cease our patriotic work until we have reared a pantheon worthy of the undying glory of the past. And here, Hogue is basically telling the people and calling on the people to always be worthy of their heritage and never forget their heritage. But back to the speech. But this day we inaugurate a new era. We lay the cornerstone of a new pantheon in commemoration of our country's fame. We come to honor the memory of one who was the impersonation of our Confederate cause and whose genius illuminated the great contest which has recently ended. 
and which made an epoch not only in our own history, but in that of the age. We assert no monopoly in the glory of that leader. It was his happy lot to command, even while he lived, the respect and admiration of right-minded and right-hearted men in every part of this land, and in all lands. It is now his rare distinction to receive the homage of those who most differed with him on the questions which lately rent this republic in twain from ocean to ocean, from the north and from the south, from the east and from the west. Men have gathered on these grounds today, widely divergent in their views on social, political, and religious topics, and yet they find in the attraction which concentrates their regard upon one name, a place where their hearts unexpectedly touch each other and beat in strange unison. And so just another pause here. You guys are going to notice throughout the entirety of the speech, Hogue keeps calling for reconciliation, but by the end of the speech, you'll understand it's a certain type of reconciliation. But back to the speech. It is a singular and striking illustration of the worldwide appreciation of his character that the first statue of Jackson comes from abroad and that while the monument to our own Washington and the effigies of those who surround him were erected by order of the Commonwealth, this memorial is the tribute of the admiration and love of those who never saw his face and who were bound to him by no ties save those which a common sympathy for exalted worth establishes between the souls of magnanimous and heroic men. We accept this noble gift all the more gratefully because it comes from men of kindred race and kindred heart as the expression of their goodwill and sympathy for our people as well as of their admiration for the genius and character of our illustrious hero. And again, another pause just for context. This particular statue was primarily funded by a small committee of Englishmen who were sympathetic to the Confederate cause. And the Virginia State Legislature had been reclaimed enough at this point that a small majority in the assembly passed a resolution to dedicate enough state funds for the pedestal and erection of the statue, but not the statue itself. So I thought that was interesting. Just wanted to give you all some more context there, but back to the speech. In the first memorial discourse that was delivered after his lamented death, the question was asked, how did it happen that a man who so recently was known to but a small circle and to them only as a laborious, punctilious, humble-minded professor in a military institute and so brief a space of time gathered around his name so much of the glory which encircles the name of Napoleon, and so much of the love that enshrines the memory of Washington. And the fact that he was the incarnation of those heroic qualities which fit their possessor to lead and command men, and which therefore always attract the admiration, kindle the imagination, and arouse the enthusiasm of the people. There is a natural element in humanity which constrains it to honor that which is strong and adventurous and indomitable. Decision, fortitude, inflexibility, intrepidity, determination, when consecrated to noble ends, and especially when associated with a gentleness which throws a softened charm over these sterner attributes, ever win and lead captive the popular heart. The masses who compose the commonality, consciously weak and irresolute, instinctively gather around the men of loftier stature in whom they find the great forces wanting in themselves and spontaneously follow the call of those whom they think competent to redress their wrongs and vindicate their rights. These are the leaders who are welcomed by the people with open arms and elevated to the high places of the earth to become the regents of society, to develop the history of the age in which they live and to impress upon it the noble image of their own personality. There is no more graphic picture in the pages of Macaulay 
than that of Warren Hastings at the age of seven, lying on the bank of a rivulet which flowed through the broad lands which were once the property of his ancestors, and there forming the resolve that all that domain should one day be his, and never abandoning his purpose through all the vicissitudes of his stormy life until, as the Hastings of Dalesford, he tasted a joy which his heart never knew in the command of the millions over whom he ruled in the Indian Empire." But stranger still was it to see a pensive, delicate orphan child of the same age, the inheritor of a feeble constitution, yet with a will even more indomitable than that of Warren Hastings, renouncing his home with a relative, who mistaking his disposition had attempted to govern him by force, and alone and on foot performing a journey of eighteen miles to the house of another kinsman, where he suddenly presented himself, announcing his unalterable resolve never to return to his former home which no remonstrances or persuasions could induce him to revoke, and stranger still to see him the year after, on a lonely island of the Mississippi River, in company with another child a few years his senior, maintaining himself by his own labor, until driven by malaria from the desolate spot where beneath the dreary forest and beside the angry floods of the Father of Waters, he had displayed the self-reliance and hardihood of a man. At a period of life when children are ordinarily scarcely out of the nursery, this inflexibility of purpose and defiance of hardship and danger and the determination to succeed was displayed in all his subsequent career. Whether we see him at West Point overcoming the disadvantages of a deficient preliminary education by a severity of application almost unparalleled in accordance with the motto he inscribed in bold characters on a page in his commonplace book, you may be whatever you resolve to be. And just another pause. Think about that in modern times. So here we have a seven-year-old orphaned Stonewall Jackson, or at this point, just Thomas J. Jackson, who lived on his own in the wilderness for a time. And as time goes on, he eventually won an appointment to West Point. And he graduated from West Point, as Hogue is saying, through sheer application of will. He was not a very good student. You can actually look that up. He was not a very good student at all. But through perseverance and a iron determination to succeed, the seven-year-old orphan turns into the 38-year-old Confederate commander down the road. Realistically, I don't think a better fairy tale could have been written or contrived. But back to the speech, he says, when his native state, which had long stood in the attitude of magnanimous mediation between the hostile sections, in the hope of preserving the union which he had assisted in forming, and to whose glory she had made such contributions was menaced by the rod of coercion and compelled to decide between submission or separation, then Jackson, who would have cheerfully laid down his life to avert the disruption, in accordance with the principles of the political school in which he had been trained, and which commanded his conscientious assent, hesitated no longer, but went straight to his decision as the beam of light goes from its God to the object it illumines. Simultaneously with the striking of the clock, which announced the hour of his departure with his cadets for the camp of instruction in this city, the command to march was given. Never was there a home dearer than his own, but he left it, never again to cross its threshold. From that time, as we are told, he never asked nor received a furlough, was never absent from duty for a day, whether sick or well, and never slept one night outside the lines of his own command. The granite strength of our dead chieftain's character is not weakened because in every throb of his heart there was a pulsation so ineffably and exquisitely tender as to liken him, even amidst the horrors of war, to the altar of pity which ancient mythology reared among the shrines of strong and avenging deities. 
This admirable commingling of strength and tenderness in his nature is touchingly illustrated by a letter now for the first time made public. An officer under his command had obtained leave of absence to visit a stricken household. A beloved member of his family had just died. Another was seriously ill, and he applied for an extension of his furlough. This is the reply. My dear Major, I have received your sad letter and wish I could relieve your sorrowing heart. But human aid cannot heal the wound. For me, you have a friend's sympathy, and I wish the suffering condition of our country permitted me to show it. But we must think of the living and of those who are to come after us and see that, with God's blessing, we transmit to them the freedom we have enjoyed. What is life without honor? Degradation is worse than death. It is necessary that you should be at your post immediately. Join me tomorrow morning. Your sympathizing friend, Thomas J. Jackson. Just another pause. These words, more than any other, exemplify exactly what the South lost when Jackson fell. He had the single-minded and dogged determination to crush the Yankee hordes that no other Southern officer possessed, not even General Lee. Jackson was amply capable of acting with reasoned aggression on his own accord, and he understood Lee's desires better than any other commander in Lee's cabinet. It is little wonder, then, that Lee wrote to him after hearing that Jackson's left arm had to be amputated, quote, Give him my affectionate regards, and tell him to make haste and get well and come back to me as soon as he can. He has lost his left arm, but I have lost my right, end quote. Alas, Stonewall would linger on for a few more days, and while his wounds were healing, his body was unable to fight off the pneumonia that set in. And he passed away on May 10th, 1863, a little more than a month before Gettysburg. But that is a story for a different episode, so let's get back to the speech. Hence, he never affected mystery. His reticence was not the assumption of impenetrability, of purpose. His reserve was not the artifice of one who seeks to awe by making himself unapproachable. He hedged himself about with no barrier of exclusiveness. He assumed no airs of pretentious dignity. He studied no dramatic effects. On the field, so far from condescending to those histrionic displays of person or theatrical arts of speech, by which some commanders have sought to excite the enthusiasm of their armies, when his troops caught the sight of his faded uniform and sunburnt cap and shook the air with their shouts as he rode along the lines, he quickened his gallop and escaped from view. When among the mountain pyramids, older than those to which the first Napoleon pointed, he did not remind his men that the centuries were looking down upon them. When on the plain, he drilled no eagles to perch on his banners, as the third Napoleon was said to have done. But one thing he did, he impressed his men with such an intense conviction of his unselfish and supreme consecration to the cause for which he had periled all, and so kindled them with his own magnetic fire as to fuse them into one articulated body one heart throbbing through all the members, one spirit animating the entire frame, that heart, that spirit his own. It was his sublime indifference to personal danger, to personal comfort, and personal aggrandizement that gave him such power over the armies he commanded, and such a place in the heart of the people of the Confederate States. And just to pause here for some context, so Stonewall Jackson got the nickname Stonewall at the First Battle of Manassas, this, uh, the battle was actually going pretty badly for the Confederate forces. Some of them had basically been driven to retreat. As a division under the command of Bernard B. was retreating, he basically stopped and paused and told Jackson, hey, the, you know, the battle's not going well. And Jackson said, if you can hold, we'll be here. 
Well, then Bernard B. rallied his men to Jackson. He pointed to Jackson and said, Look, men, there be Jackson standing like a stone wall. Rally behind the Virginians. And so after that battle, Stonewall actually did not like that nickname, or more accurately, I guess, he didn't feel it was his nickname because in his mind, if his unit had not held, if his brigade had not held at Manassas, then there's no Stonewall to tell about. So that's how the 1st Brigade became the Stonewall Brigade, and by extension, that's how Thomas J. Jackson became Stonewall Jackson. Back to the speech. The true test of attachment to any cause is what one is willing to suffer for its advancement, and it is the spectacle of disinterested devotion to the right and true at the cost of toil and travail and blood, if need be, that captivates the popular heart and calls forth its admiration and sweetest affection. Such a man was Jackson. Such is the recognition of him beyond the sea, of which this statue is a token. Such is our appreciation of his claim upon our gratitude, upon our undying love, and testimony of which we gather around this statue today and crown it with the laurel, first moistened by our tears. But this universal sentiment of regard for his memory rests upon foundations which lie still deeper in the human heart. At the mention of his name, another idea inseparably associated with it invariably asserts its place in the mental portraiture of which all men acquainted with his history have formed of him, and so I announce as the third and last explanation of the homage awarded him the sincerity, the purity, and the elevation of his character as a servant of the Most High God. It is refreshing, too, to note that at this day, when political economists abandon the weaker races to the law of natural selection and contemplate with complacency the process by which the dominant races extirpate the less capable, he sought to place the gentle but strong and sustaining hand of Christianity beneath the African population of the South, and so arrest the operation of that law by developing them, if possible, into a self-sustaining people. Those were true and brave words of the British Premier when he said, quote, Society has a soul as well as a body. The traditions of a nation are a part of its existence, its valor and its discipline, its religious faith, its venerable laws, its science and its erudition its poetry, its art, its eloquence, and its scholarship are as much a portion of its existence as its agriculture, its commerce, and its engineering skill. End quote. The death of every soldier who fell in our Confederate war is a protest against that base philosophy which would make physical good man's highest good and which would attempt to rear a noble commonwealth on mere material foundations. Every soldier who offers his life to his country demonstrates the superiority of the moral to the physical and proclaims that truth and right and honor and liberty are nobler than animal existence and worth the sacrifice even when blood is the offering. And again, for context, Stonewall Jackson was a very fiercely devout Southern Presbyterian and he taught many slaves to read, and he was actually an ardent supporter and even a teacher of a black Sunday school at his local Presbyterian church. And it's telling to me that Hogue chose to mention this bit in the speech, and I would call on listeners to understand that social Darwinism was rampant in the North and in some parts of the South at this time, but men like Jackson, Davis, and Lee cared about the well-being of slaves in a ruthless Yankee economy and society that only cared about production and the bottom line. Were both sections racist? Yes, absolutely beyond a doubt. But a lot of Southerners, because they had physical proximity with black people, actually did care about their well-being. The North did not. The North actually did not want them there. 
Look at the original state constitution of Ohio if you want an example of this. But the North did not want them around. They did not want them degrading free white labor. And if they were to be around, if black people were to be around, then Northern society basically said, keep up or get left behind. We don't owe you anything, so get with the program or get lost. And this is a stark contrast to Lincoln, who told Alexander H. Stevens at the Hampton Roads Peace Conference that the former slaves could, quote, root hog or die, end quote, when Stevens asked how their welfare would be provided for. And Stonewall was also described by his pastor, Dr. William Spotswood White, as emphatically the black man's friend. And during the war, Jackson actually rented a slave named Jim Lewis to be his personal attendant. Stonewall and Jim developed a bond, and Jim was one of the few people allowed to enter Jackson's room at any time as the general laid on his deathbed. When Jackson was initially wounded, Jim was even tasked with packing up all of Stonewall's belongings, supplies, and headquarters and ensuring they made it to the general. And upon Jackson's death, Jim was even given the honor of leading one of the general's horses named Superior in the funeral procession. And Jim continued to serve with one of Stonewall's aides named Sandy Pendleton until Pendleton's death in 1864, at which point Jim returned to his home in Lexington and he sadly passed away the same year, and his cause of death and his resting place remain unknown to this day. But back to the speech. Such was the man who was second in command in our Confederate armies, and whose success as a leader during the bright, brief career allotted to him was second to that of no one of his illustrious comrades in arms. And yet the cause of which all this valor was consecrated, and for which all these sacrifices were made, was not destined to triumph. And here, perhaps, we learn one of the most salutary lessons of this wonderful history. Doubtless all men who have ever given their labors and affection to any cause fervently hope to be the witnesses of its assured triumph. Nor do I deny that success makes the pulses of enterprise beat faster and fuller. Like the touch of the goddess, it transforms the still marble into breathing life. But yet all history, sacred and profane, is filled with illustrations of the truth that success, and especially contemporary success, is not the test of merit. Our own observation in the world in which we move proves the same truth. Has not popular applause ascended like license before tyrants who surrendered their lives to the basest and most degrading passions? Have not reproach and persecution and poverty and defeat been the companions of noble men in all ages who have given their toil and blood to great causes? Are they less noble because they were the victims of arbitrary power or because an untoward generation would not appreciate the grand problems which they solved or because they lived in a generation which was not worthy of them? Other things being equal, the tribute of our admiration is more due to him who, in spite of disaster, pursues the cause which he has espoused than to one who requires the stimulus of the applause of an admiring public. We are sure of a worthy object when we give our plaudits to the earnest soul who has followed his convictions in the midst of peril and disaster because of his faith in them. It is well that even every honest effort in the cause of right and truth is not always crowned with success. Defeat is the discipline which trains the truly heroic soul to further and better endeavors. And if these last should fail, and he can do battle no more, he can lay down his armor with the assurance that others will put it on, and in God's good time vindicate the truth in whose behalf he had not vainly spent his life. Our people, since the termination of the war, have illustrated the lessons learned in the school of adversity. 
Having vindicated their valor and endurance during the conflict, they have since exhibited their patience and self-control under the most trying circumstances. He's talking about Reconstruction here. Their dignity in the midst of poverty and reverses, their heroic resignation to what they could not avert, have shown that subjugation itself could not conquer true greatness of soul. And by none have these virtues been illustrated more impressively than by the veterans of the long conflict, who laid down their arms at its close and mingled again with their fellow citizens, distinguished from the rest only by their superior reverence for law, their patient industry, their avoidance of all that might cause needless irritation and provoke new humiliations, and their readiness to regard as friends in peace those whom they had so recently resisted as enemies in war. The tree is known by its fruits. Your Excellency has reminded us that our civilization should be judged by the character of the men it has produced. If our recent revolution had been irradiated by the luster of but the two names, Lee and Jackson, it would still have illumined one of the brightest pages in history. I have not spoken of the former today, not because my heart was not full of him, but because the occasion required me to speak of another, and because the day is not distant when one more competent to do justice to this great theme than I have been to mine will address another assembly of the men of the South and the North and West upon these capital grounds, when our new pantheon will be completed by the erection of another monument and the inauguration of the statue of Lee with his generals around him amid the tears Congratulations of a countless multitude. And again, pause. Notice that Hogue is speaking with the expectation that the memory and the valor of Jackson will in time be loved and cherished by all sections of the country. The desire that Hogue expressed was for a true reconciliation and a cessation of hostilities. This sets the scene beautifully for the next phase of the speech when Hogue talks about the sorrowful spirit that gripped the entirety of the South when Stonewall fell. He says, It was in the noontide of Jackson's glory that he fell. But what a pall of darkness suddenly shrouded all the land in that hour. If any illustration were needed of the hold he had acquired on the hearts of our people, on the hearts of the good and brave and true throughout all the civilized world, it would be found in the universal lament which went up everywhere when it was announced that Jackson was dead. From the little girl at the Chandler house who wished that God would let her die in his stead, because then only her mama would cry. But if Jackson died, all the people of the country would cry. From this humble child up to the commander-in-chief who wept as only the strong and brave can weep at the tidings of his fall. From the weather-beaten sea captain who had never seen his face, but who burst into loud, uncontrollable grief, standing on the deck of his vessel with his rugged sailors around him wondering what had happened to break that heart of oak, up to the English Earl, honored on both sides of the Atlantic, who exclaimed when the sad news came to him, Jackson was in some respects the greatest man America ever produced. And where in all the annals of the world's sorrow for departed worth was there such a pathetic impersonation of a nation's grief as was embodied in the old mutilated veteran of Jackson's division, who as the shades of evening fell and when the hour for the closing of the doors of the Capitol came, and when the lingering throng was warned to retire, was seen anxiously pressing through the crowd to take his last look at the face of his beloved leader. They told him he was too late, that they were closing up the coffin for the last time, that the order had been given to clear the hall. Still he struggled forward, refusing to take a denial, until one of the marshals of the day was about to exercise his authority to force him back. 
Upon this, the old soldier lifted the stump of his right arm toward the heavens, and with tears running down his bearded face, exclaimed, By this arm, which I lost for my country, I demand the privilege of seeing my general once more. Such an appeal was irresistible, and at the instance of the governor of the commonwealth, the pomp was arrested until this humble comrade had also dropped his tear upon the face of his dead leader. And just another pause. In spite of all this, still Hogue holds out hope for genuine reconciliation as the following sentence proclaims. Your Excellency did well to make the path broad, which leads through these capital grounds to this statue. For it will be trodden by the feet of all who visit this city, whether they come from the banks of the Hudson, the Mississippi, or the Sacramento, whether from the Tiber, the Rhine, or the Danube. So again, Hogue imagines Jackson becoming not only the spirit of the South, but the treasure of the world over, his monument to be seen by all who honor the bold and cherish the brave. However, Hogue is not willing to blindly accept dictated terms from the foreign conquerors throughout this healing process as he makes plainly known to his audience. He says, It is true that memories unutterably sad have at times swept through this mighty throng today, but we are not here to indulge in reminiscences only, much less in vain regrets. We have a future to face, and in that future lies not only duty and trials perhaps, but also hope. For when we ask what has become of the principles in the defense of which Jackson imperiled and lost his life, then I answer, a form of government may change, a policy may perish, but a principle can never die. Circumstances may so change as to make the application of the principle no longer possible, but its innate vitality is not affected thereby. The conditions of society may be so altered as to make it idle to contend for a principle which no longer has any practical force. But these changed conditions of society have not annihilated one original truth. The application of these postulates to the present situation of our country is obvious. The people of the South maintained, as their fathers maintained before them, that certain principles were essential to the perpetuation of the Union according to its original Constitution. Rather than surrender their conviction, they took up arms to defend them. The appeal was vain. Defeat came and they accepted it with its consequences, just as they would have accepted victory with its fruits. They have sworn to maintain the government as it is now constituted. They will not attempt again to assert their views of state sovereignty by an appeal to the sword. None feel this obligation to be more binding than the soldiers of the late Confederate armies. A soldier's parole is a sacred thing, and the men who are willing to die for a principle in time of war are the men of all others most likely to maintain their personal honor in time of peace. But it is idle to shut our eyes to the fact that this consolidated empire of states is not the union established by our fathers. And if history teaches any lesson, it is this, that a nation cannot long survive when the fundamental principles which gave it life originally are subverted. It is true republics have often degenerated into despotism. It is also true that after such transformation, they have for a time been characterized by a force, a prosperity, and a glory never known in their earlier annals. But it has always been a force which absorbed and obliterated the rights of the citizen, a prosperity which was gained by the sacrifice of individual independence, a glory which was ever the precursor of inevitable anarchy, disintegration, and ultimate extinction. And so, again, much like with the lead dedication ceremony, here we have the speaker telling all of posterity that they were fighting to maintain the principles of the founding generation as they understood them. 
Slavery was not mentioned as a reason for their struggle here. Everything makes reference to 1776 and the first American War for Independence. Even though the South sought to go its own way, the principles they fought for were still uniquely American, which is the reason that they could be forced back in and still maintain their regional identity and the wisdom of the founders. Hogue goes on from here to rail against any future and further centralization of the American government. He says, And now standing before this statue, and as in the living presence of the man it represents, cordially endorsing as I do the principles of the political school in which he was trained, and in defense of which he died, and unable yet even to think of our dead confederacy without memories unutterably tender, I speak not for myself but for the South, when I say it is our interest, our duty, and determination to maintain the Union and to make every possible contribution to its prosperity and glory. If all the states which compose it will unite in making it such a union as our fathers framed, and in enthroning above it, not a Caesar, but the Constitution and its old supremacy. If ever these states are welded together in one great fraternal enduring union, with one heart pulsating through the entire frame as the tides throb through the bosom of the sea, it will be when they all stand on the same level, with such a jealous regard for each other's rights that when the interest or honor of one is assailed, all the rest feeling the wound, even as the body feels the pain inflicted on one of its members, will kindle with just resentment at the outrage, because an injury done to a part is not only a wrong, but an indignity offered to the whole. But if that cannot be, then I trust the day will never dawn when the southern people will add degradation to defeat and hypocrisy to subjugation by professing a love for the Union which denies to one of their states a single right accorded to Massachusetts or New York. To such a union we will never be heartily loyal while that bronze hand grasps its sword. While yonder river chants the requiem of the 16,000 Confederate dead, who was Stuart, among them, sleep on the hills of Hollywood. And so again, he's saying, yes, we want reconciliation, but we are not just going to stand by and watch the destruction of the entire American fabric. But despite the bitter and dark tones here, Hogue cannot help but feel optimistic toward the future as he concludes the speech as follows. But I will not end my oration with an anticipation so disheartening. I cannot so end it because I look forward to the future with more of hope than of despondency. I believe in the perpetuity of Republican institutions so far as any work of man may be said to possess that attribute. The complete emancipation of our constitutional liberty must come from other quarters, but we have our part to perform, one requiring patience, prudence, fortitude, and faith. A cloud of witnesses encompasses us. The bronze figures on these monuments seem for the moment to be replaced by the spirits of the immortal men whose name they bear. As if an angel spoke their tones, thrill our hearts. First, it is the calm voice of Washington that we hear. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. And then Henry's clarion tones arouse us, Liberty, the greatest of all earthly blessings, give us that precious jewel and you may take all the rest. Then Jefferson speaks, Fellow citizens, it is proper you should understand what I deem the essential principles of government, equal and exact justice to all men of whatsoever state or persuasion, religious or political, 
the support of state governments and all their rights as the surest bulwarks against anti-Republican tendencies, the preservation of the general government and its whole constitutional vigor as the sheet anchor of our peace at home and safety abroad, the supremacy of the civil over military authority, the honest payment of our debts and sacred preservation of the public faith. And should we wander away from these principles in moments of error and alarm, let us hasten to retrace our steps and to regain the road which alone leads to peace, liberty, and safety. And last, it is Jackson's clear ring and tone to which we listen. What is life without honor? Degradation is worse than death. We must think of the living and of those who are to come after us and see that by God's blessing, we transmit to them the freedom we have enjoyed. Heaven, hear the prayer of our dead, immortal hero. And so that concludes Hogue's speech, but as y'all can see, slavery wasn't mentioned other than to say Jackson actually was a friend of the black man per his people who knew him in real life. But the bigger takeaway here is that, yes, we want reconciliation, but we want it with conditions. We want a preservation of the original union as close as possible. Now, the argument can be strongly made that that was not practical after the war concluded because of the nature of it, but that was the desire. And the South deserved its heroes. The South still deserves its heroes, if only we're worthy of our heritage, as Hogue told us at the beginning of the speech. And as we conclude this episode, I want to end it with the farewell address given by Stonewall Jackson to the men of his original unit of command, the 1st Brigade, or later known as the Stonewall Brigade, of the Army of the Shenandoah, and later the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee was the heart, but Jackson was the immortal spirit of the South. And Jackson says, I'm not here to make a speech, but simply to say farewell. I first met you at Harper's Ferry in the commencement of this war, and I cannot take leave of you without giving expression to my admiration of your conduct from that day to this. Whether on the march, in the bivouac, in the tenant field, or on the bloody plains of Manassas, where you gained the well-deserved reputation of having decided the fate of that battle. Throughout the broad extent of country over which you have marched, by your respect for the rights and the property of citizens, you have shown that you were soldiers, not only to defend, but able and willing both to defend and protect. You have already gained a brilliant and deservedly high reputation throughout the army of the whole Confederacy, and I trust in the future by your deeds on the field and by the assistance of the same kind providence who has heretofore favored our cause, you will gain more victories and add additional luster to the reputation you now enjoy. You have already gained a proud position in the future history of this, our second war of independence. I shall look with great anxiety to your future movements, and I trust whenever I shall hear of the first brigade on the field of battle, it will be of still nobler deeds achieved and higher reputation won. In the army of the Shenandoah, you were the first brigade. In the army of the Potomac, you were the first brigade. In the second corps of the army, you are the first brigade. You are the first brigade in the affections of your general. And I hope by your future deeds and bearing, you will be handed down to posterity as the first brigade in this, our second war of independence. Farewell. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener today. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your gold backs. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time.